looking at it the other day. All right, well, um, I guess we'll get started. Uh, if people want to filter in, that's fine. My name's Scott Carley. I'm from the Alaska State Museum. I'm the curator of statewide services there. I do uh, field services and outreach for the state of Alaska. I go around to a lot of small museums in Alaska and try and help them uh, be better museums, sort of whatever they need. Um, my training is as a conservator. Um, I went to graduate school near here at what we call in conservation the Buffalo Program. It used to be part of the Cooperstown Program. Um, and I worked as a conservator for about uh, 15 years. Um, I worked at the uh, Arizona State Museum, the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, uh, the Smithsonian um, National Museum of the American Indian for a few years, and then I moved up to the, um, uh, to the Alaska State Museum in 2000. Uh, but in 2006, my boss um, asked me to sort of take over the, the outreach program, and so that's why I'm, I'm no longer kind of a, a bench conservator anymore, but I, I still um, think about, I'm very object-centric. Um, and this, um, this program that we have today for you is, is kind of a, um, a second page or a, a next chapter of a program that we did in Atlanta. Did anybody go to the one that was in Atlanta? Um, you were, yeah. Um, and I, I just thought it was, was a really good session, not just because I was a part of it, but because um, I just thought that the audience really got into it. Um, I thought that Don Rooney here was my cohort on that. Um, he's from the Atlanta History Museum, uh, curator yeah, of history. And um, what, the, what we did for that was we showed a few objects uh, each and um, just talked to, him, talked to them about them uh, from our our standpoint, and um, it ended up being an article. It, be, it grew into an article that came out in History News. Some of you may have, have uh, read it, um, and I think the article is very true to the spirit of uh, how the session went. So um, I thought it was something that um, could be repeated um, maybe a few times. Who knows what the enthusiasm for it will be, with a different cast of characters and a different um, set of objects, because it's, it's uh, a continuing dialogue that we have about objects and about their use. Um, and that's really the, the underlying text of, of these um, mutual goal sessions is uh, how, how we use objects in museums. And, and sometimes those objects may be expendable, and that's okay. Uh, sometimes we're, uh, we're under public trust duty to preserve them in perpetuity. So any little scratch might be uh, really a bad thing. Um, but I think keeping that dialogue open and, and having the different professions talk to each other. So what I did was um, I invited a, a couple of other um, uh, professionals to be up here with me this time. And one, uh, one thing that did come out of the Atlanta session was that uh, a few people came up to me afterwards and said, uh, you know, it would have been good to have somebody who is more of an exhibitor uh, or an exhibit person on that staff because they think about objects differently. So um, we tried to do that uh, with this session. So um, to my immediate uh, left, I have uh, Patricia Tice, who is the curator of the John L. Whaley, Whaley? Or Whaley. Yes. Whaley. Whaley. The John L. Whaley Art Gallery, um, which is located at the um, Genesee Country Village. Um, she's been working in museums for 29 years, uh, most of those at, at the Strong Museum here in Rochester as well, um, as the curator of collections. Um, and she was also at the Henry Ford Museum for a year. So um, she's, she's going to be covering a lot of different bases, but I, I hope that she'll be able to cover more of the uh, looking through the eyes of an, an exhibit person or a curator of exhibits. Um, we also have Brian Nagel to my far left. He uh, joined the Genesee Country Village Museum uh, as a curator of collections in September of 05 
and um, then was moved to be the director of interpretations in February of 2006. So that's kind of the hat that he wears now. Uh, he has a degree in, um, in uh, a Bachelor of Art and a Master's of Art Arts in um, Anthropology from the State University of New York at Buffalo as well. So we might have even been there at the same time, who knows. Uh, <laughs> he worked at the Rochester Museum of Science for 21 years and um, he's managed a regional heritage preservation program at the Rochester Museum of Science. Uh, I just want to shorten some of this, but uh, anyway, I think that's, that's uh, a good introduction to Brian. I think Brian brings um, a lot of uh, his personal and professional experience to the table um, from being a curator of collections to being an interpreter and also to being an archaeologist. So um, we're going to see um, that whole side of things. The way, uh, just a little housekeeping, I'll tell you how, the, how I would like for this to unfold is that um, we, uh, we're going to hear sort of three presentations. Uh, Patricia will go first and then Brian will go second. I'll go last. Each one of them will present sort of a, uh, an idea. Each one of us will present an idea um, that has something to do with objects. Um, many of their objects are basically all of their objects I've never seen before. So I'm seeing them for the first time just like you are. And I, I kind of wanted to do that because when um, Don and I were in Atlanta, I hadn't really seen his objects either, um, nor he mine. I mean, we knew a little bit about what we were going to present, but it made things seem very fresh and very um, off, you know, not, not canned and not staged or anything. And I, I thought that presented a, a little bit uh, of, of a good thing for it. So uh, you're going to see these for the first time. I'm going to see these for the first time, and, and we'll just get going. So, Patricia? Well, thank you very much. Uh, first, let me ask if everybody can hear me. Yep. It is on, and what it's doing is it's, it, it's not projecting, it's just taping. Oh, so. okay. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have visited Genesee Country Village Museum? Genesee Country Village and Museum. Oh, good, many of you. Were you down there yesterday? Yep, okay. Well, then, some of you, anyway, have at least an overview about this particular institution. Um, I may be able to provide you some background information that will put it into a better context. For those of you who haven't been down there, let me just explain what this museum is all about, or at least let me explain what the main components of the museum are about. We are on 700 acres. We have 68 historic structures, which we interpret. Um, very often, most, uh, most of them are staffed by interpreters. And your experience when you go into one of these buildings tends to be, at this time, more like visiting an historic house museum. So you might go into like 60, 67, 68 different historic houses or structures. Then there's also the Nature Center, and that's where I'm stationed at the um, art gallery, where we do interpretive exhibits, and we have... We draw upon our art collection, which was founded by John L. Whaley. He collected sporting art, and there is a very good niche collection of this genre of art there. And we also do, we're just starting to move into historical exhibits. And then we have a very fine nature center. We are typical of many different institutions which are experiencing growing pains. We were founded by a private individual, Jack Whaley, who was president of the Genesee Beer Company, and who had very decided ideas about the type of history he wanted to pre pre project 
And we're now really, like many living history museums, trying to keep a fresh interpretation, trying to develop an interpretation that would be really immersive and very meaningful to our visitors. In other words, we're really trying to reinvent ourselves at this time. How do we go from being a village of 67, 68 historic houses to something which is more connected, more meaningful, which people can relate to? Now, I've put on the this this screen the three sort of catchwords which came into my mind when Brian first told me about this, because it's about conservation, it's about how an exhibitor looks at objects, it's about how um, a conservator would look at objects. And looking good, of course, is what the exhibit designer wants. We want that design to look good. Looking right is what the curator in us all clamors for. Looking forward about preserving the object for the future. And it's only when you have these three things in balance that I think you really have a successful product. And basically, we, like many other institutions, were really stuck in looking good. What was perceived to look good? So, for example, Jack Whaley um, decided that the Jones Farm should be a showcase for painted furniture, stenciling, uh, painted floors, stenciled fabric. So the entire complex is just one painted symphony. Um, and we are looking for deeper meanings, both from, um, and it still looks nice, you know, if you're into decorative art, if you're into design, but does it look right for the period? I don't think so. I don't think many people would think so. And does it preserve the objects? Not when a stencil tablecloth is on a table and, you know, obviously in sunlight. So what are we doing? We're moving forward. We're looking forward to provide better conservation for our objects. And I have to back up and say that probably like a lot of you, I'm an all-in-one. You know, like the printer, copier, scanner. Well, I'm the curator. I'm also the exhibit designer, sometimes a fabricator, and definitely the conservator. So I argue a lot with myself. But generally speaking, you know, I think basically common sense and our, our commitment to stewardship will win every argument. So what I wanted to do was just show you one of the first buildings that you see, the Toll House. And what we're doing, you see, is evaluating collections right now, first of all, to figure out not simply what looks good, but what is, what is right for the house. And I've just been evaluating the furniture collection with our registrar, with a consultant, and with our director of programming and collections. And this will give you an idea of just a small vignette in our toll house, which was on the Lima Road. And we have a really interesting table here. And again, Years ago, people thought, this looks good because it's primitive, it's rough, you know, it's, it's... Does anybody recognize what this actually is, by the way? I was just curious. It's something that I just found out a week ago after doing research, because we have these two tables, and they're very often just described as demi-loom uh, card tables and sort of prized for their primitive country um, look. And the thing that made me very suspicious about these tables are they're extremely low. And, you know, people would say, oh, well, they've been cut down. Well, actually, it was designed to be this way for a reason, because it's the underpinnings of a woman's dressing table or toilette table. 
and would not meant you know would not have been meant to be seen. It would have been oops, absolutely sheathed in various types of skirts or draperies and a toilette cloth that covered the top of it. And we're fortunate enough to have two, one of which appears to be in fairly authentic condition. It seems to retain its integrity as an object, one of which, which does not. So one of our plans for the future, and Brian can speak to this too, is that we will be taking down some of the barriers. We will be taking out artifacts which have great provenance, original um, integrity as objects, not, not too um, many additions or deletions or losses, whatever. And basically, those items will go into a permanent collection, which probably will be housed, stored, and exhibited in the gallery. And then our matching table, which has a completely restored top, new top, I imagine will be moved from the tollkeeper's house and placed in an appropriate bedroom where it will be draped and dressed as it was meant to be with a mirror put on top of it. And that will be made available for visitors to touch, handle, sit at, play with. We'll put some accoutrements on the dressing table as well and probably, you know, well, definitely reproduction textiles, but probably reproduce a toilette cloth and talk about toilette water and all of these different things which evolved from this um, ceremony, this process of getting dressed, of doing your hair, as it evolved from the late 18th century into the 19th century. So that is the real major, major change we're talking about, is taking um, collections which are second string, so to speak, which do not offer some important documentation or insights into the object itself and making it available to visitors. And it's, it's going to be a real challenge because not only is it simply evaluating the collections and creating a programming collection and a permanent collection, it's also about re-educating our interpretive staff, some of whom are very, very territorial and possessive about their houses. And I have to say, on one of the first days I was at the museum, I walked into the Humphrey House, where a certain interpreter just spread out her arms and said, this is my house. Don't take anything away from it, you know. And so we're also dealing with this, too. It's not only the objects that we are um, preserving, interpreting, and exhibiting. It is our interpretive staff who sort of come along with the whole package. So it's, it's quite an interesting procedure. Now, this is another example of, this is the Thompson Tavern. And another example of, you know, how basic authenticating the collections is taking place. Now, again, a lot of museums are ahead of us. This is where we're starting. We have just really recently had a professional staff in just the last few years, really. Um, you might go into the tavern and you'll see actually not one but two table chairs which again have this nice primitive look and they were indeed made in the 18th and early um, 19th century. But if you do more research, you'll find that they're made all over the place. Buffalo was turning them out in the 1870s because they were ironing tables. You know, this idea of having them in the tavern, there are some chair settles where probably 
that use did happen. But for the most part, these were ironing tables. And the idea was you wanted to keep your ironing surface free from grease, free from um, any type of dirt, and how better way to do that than to flip it up and not have it being used as a table. And these benches are all conveniently hinged, so you can store your flat irons, all of your different ironing pads, uh, pot holders, and other accoutrement in the seat. And of course, I get, there, it's a very simple form. It's been made with very little change for any number of years. Put a couple coats of paint on it, and again, it sort of masquerades, masquerades as a country primitive. And most people want to put them in taverns or put them in other types of settings. Again, we have three at last count. And this gives us the opportunity to take one of them, which has a replaced top, which was fairly common because they're, they're just held together with pegs. Very simple construction. And again, put it out in the public place. Um, we haven't picked out the house where we'll do this, but instead of having our interpreters talk about the fine buttermilk paint, what they'll be talking is about more is how the object was used. What it was like to have to launder when you had to haul water, when you had to use um, soda as a detergent, what it was like to um, have this terrible chore of lifting heavy sodden sheets out of a uh, wash tub and what it meant to do the ironing. Why was laundry day called Blue Monday? You know, for a very good reason. So it gives us an opportunity to move away from a sort of decorative arts interpretation of the object and into a history-based context. And at the same time, we can give them information, give our visitors information too about how these different objects were uh, made and used, and how long they were made and used, too. So that's sort of one side of our museum. But then we also have the art gallery, and we have a very fine collection, and we're indeed fortunate to have four Remingtons, and you're looking at a fairly rare one. This is The Outlaw by Frederick Remington, and it's one of 15 casts, which was done in his lifetime. Um, he himself put the finishing touches on it, and there are about nine out in the public marketplace, um, and the rest are in museums. So what we have is, is a very precious item. Now, I, as I said, served as the exhibit designer, and one of the first things I did with our Southwestern Gallery was completely change the colors. It's difficult to see, but the designer in me said, well, I want to capture the colors of the earth of, of the Southwest, so we'll sort of have a ground line of brown and then we'll move up and glaze it with coppers which will really make all these colors sing, you know, and just pop out. And initially, as my predecessors had done before me, all the Remingtons were out. They were on a deck, um, well set back from public reach, behind stanchions, and looking absolutely glorious in the properly lit exhibit. And we found that people had no difficulty having had a hands-on experience in the visit in the village, coming back into the gallery and again, you know, just climbing past the stanchions onto the decks to see if that rain really was three-dimensional and if they really could make it wiggle, which they found out they could, which is why, you know, after about a half a day of trying it, it's in a locked vitrine with security screws and, you know, and 
That's a reality. There are a number of things, you know, the, you can go to the Memorial Art Gallery and see any number of things out and reasonably accessible in an art museum, but you put the art museum down in the village setting and it's a different set of rules. So it's just a matter of common sense that some things need to be properly locked up, some things can be out, and we just have to make those calls as we see it. Um, Brian took this photograph through a vitrine and this is part of our um, Sweet Desserts in America exhibit. And you're looking at a sugar paste um, cake ornament that was made around seven, uh, 1878. And what we did with this, again, you know, as, an, as a museum curator, I want this very rare piece out. Um, as someone concerned about its well-being, we were able to... Um, procure the services of a conservator who is able to reattach the hand and finger, right, that little finger. This is only about so big. Um, and using magnifying glasses and all sorts of tiny forceps, he was able to reattach this and really bring it back to its original appearance. And then what we did, which we have here, is I basically took cake pans and stacked them up, painted them to match the object here to suggest the original usage. And again, because I'm also the exhibit designer, um, getting certain ubiquitous objects to really come forward and sing, to get people to look at them, is sometimes difficult. So we play all sorts of games. This was one of them. A very, very simple tried and true technique of using a graphic and making that come to life, making it seem like it was a scene you could walk into and then matching up every object in the painting with objects which came from our own collection. And the result was a lot of our visitors and staff began looking at these objects a little bit differently because they were seeing them not in the context of being in a dry sink, but sort of in this gallery setting in the context of a painting showing their everyday use. So as, as I mentioned, this is a real work in progress. I do hope that you will come back and visit us when we can really cut the ribbons on this new in interpretation of our village, when we can offer a really immersive experience and have you come into the houses and experience not just the environments, but also different facets of 19th century life. Brian, could I ask you for your comments? I think one of the things that I'll talk about more in a few minutes is what <clears throat> Patricia mentioned a, mo a moment ago is the evaluation or re-evaluation of the collections. Uh, it's extremely important as we go forward uh, trying to create uh, more immersive environments, trying to create uh, a, uh, a more accurate look at the 19th century for our visitors that they can actually physically walk into. Uh, when the collection was first uh, made, uh, 1966 to 1976, uh, the whole purpose of that was to furnish buildings. Uh, the quality of the objects didn't really matter. The histories of the objects didn't really matter. And if you had to, to fudge something or to put a new table, tabletop on, things of that sort, just to fill the spaces was the main issue. For us to move forward to create uh, these environments without actually impacting the permanent collection items, those objects that were acquired either knowingly uh, as a higher end, a more appropriate permanent collection item, uh, or just by chance doing that, uh, we can now uh, begin to, to use uh, the uh, collections that are a second tier or an education uh, type collection to begin to reinterpret buildings 
um, that uh, will allow folks to be able to walk in, sit down, and have a more of a personal experience uh, within one of the 68 buildings. Um, so that uh, reevaluation is our first step in doing that, and then beginning to test some of these ideas in a few of the buildings uh, going forward. We'll talk more about those in just a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Or uh, if you'd yeah. like to continue, sure. Okay. Well, actually, I, I wanted to, before he launches into his program, I, I just want to make some comments. Uh, yeah. One thing I think is, is very important um, from a conservation standpoint is to, um, is what Patricia was saying about having um, certain collections that are, are designated uh, for certain uses. And uh, Patricia used a word that I, or a phrase that I wrote down that I have, uh, I've not heard before, but I've been looking for. Um, I, I talk a lot to small museums, and there are a few house museums in Alaska uh, that they really aren't very advanced in their thinking about uh, visitor uh, interaction with their collections. Uh, they feel like, oh, we're up in Alaska, you know, nobody's going to hurt anything. And, you know, it's been up here for a long time. Nobody really uh, has done any damage. And so they, they leave a lot of stuff out. And I keep warning them about theft and about um, opportunistic touching and, and things like that can cause damage. Uh, and so I say, you know, you can have uh, artifacts that are accessioned into your um, permanent collection, and those you have a public trust duty to care for in perpetuity. Uh, and then you can have ones that are accessioned into your education collection. But Patricia used a phrase here I think is really good, which is programming collection. And I was always looking for some idea about that, and that would be kind of, um, those would be objects that are used for programming. Those are objects that are used for exhibit, for example. Um, and they're still tracked, they're still cataloged, um, they're still cared for in a certain way, but they have a different um, function within the museum. And there's probably a whole list of hierarchy, and, and you were saying, you know, not particularly rare, or, you know, this other one was rare, or this one was in a good condition, and that one was not in its original condition, so we're going to use that one. And I think that that's one of the most important things from a conservation standpoint, um, because, uh, despite what you might think uh, about conservators, uh, we don't want to preserve everything forever because we realize that that's um, kind of a fool's work. But um, what we do want to know is what is important to preserve. And I think that's uh, one of the key ideas that um, comes out of a collection like this, which is very difficult to care for. There's no doubt about it. But a large um, living history or, or a interpretive village with 67 buildings, that would be 68. 68 buildings, and probably literally thousands of objects, right? Mm -hmm. the, very difficult to, to have a meaningful conservation program without running around and screaming at everybody. <laughs> so um, I think having, um, you know, for lack of a better word, a tiered collection is, is very wise. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to, um, to really point out from a conservator standpoint, so another thing that I had never really thought about is how. Um, one part of your museum could be sending one message, and the other part of your museum could be sending a completely different message, and how you have to be conscious of that. Uh, and now I'm more conscious of that, and I think that that's a very good way to approach uh, some things. Even on a, you know, this is a very large landscape, hundreds of acres, hundred, you know, 68 buildings. But even in a small, small part of your museum, uh, or a small museum, where there might be an area of, oh, please, you know, please handle this, please touch this, and then they carry that idea off into this other area. Uh, I think that having very clear distinctions like the vitrine now over the Remington, and I'm sure that might have even been a fight with some 
people about, you know, how, how that Remington looked. Oh, well, you know, a lot of people always say, well, you go into the art museum and their stuff is out. And, but you're absolutely right. You go into an art museum and there's a whole um, atmosphere of more respect for the objects. Uh, it doesn't always work. Um, I'm still an advocate for please do not touch or, or for um, letting people know that we don't intend to touch things. But I do know that uh, in art museums, people have a little bit more respect. And then when you get into sort of the history side of it, they just feel like, <laughs> you know, all bets are off, those sorts of things. <laughs> So I, I think that those are two um, really good points from, from a conservation standpoint because um, I know that just in thinking about a conservation plan for a place like this, I know that the, um, another place that Patricia worked, the um, Henry Ford Museum, has been doing a lot of work on um, use of collections and tiered collections. So there are a lot of forward thinking out there in that way. So that's what I wanted to comment on to add that, um, of course, our responsibility is also to clue people in on what's going on and make, make sure that they know that this particular house is a hands-on experience. And we probably will have several houses or perhaps a room within a house which will remain gated, which will remain off-limits to give people, again, that sort of context. Now, this is how a parlor would have looked. Um, and again, I, I would expect that the permanent collections or a lot of the permanent collections might be moved to the gallery, which will be, we're working on renovating the HVAC system and expanding the storage area so we can adequately house the objects which are truly worthy of saving, which are not duplicates of duplicates of duplicates. We are able to sort of provide them with an honored artifact status, so to speak, and also use them as a basis for interpretive programming and exhibitions within the gallery. But we need to make it clear to our visitors what it is we're up to. And that's a challenge I think all museums face. I think I want to build on what Scott said, Patricia said also a moment ago. I think being consistent in the message, not only to our interpreters uh, about these objects, but also the visitors. Uh, for almost 33 years, uh, interpreters have been told, don't touch, don't dust, uh, leave them alone, allow the, the curatorial staff to come in uh, and care for these things. And meanwhile, the dust is building up, and so is the cobwebs, and they uh, feel responsible for those things. Um, so being consistent now with our change in, well, some objects have more value than others, and now as we open up the gates or the, uh, the ropes, uh, you're not going to be responsible for, for each and every piece uh, of, uh, of collection items in your building. Uh, in a recent uh, visit to our museum by uh, folks from Connor Prairie, uh, with their open door policy for many of their buildings, uh, it, the, the loss or breakage of some things that they've acquired just through purchase is the cost of doing business. Very different way of looking at collection items uh, that would fall under the program use uh, than others. Uh, the other message also, as we begin developing uh, rooms or buildings that are really more hands-on or accessible, uh, to make sure that we're not mixing in uh, real collection items that, that do have value with those that uh, are being used for programming use, either in the same building or in the, uh, in the same room. Uh, I think uh, important uh, for, uh, for us is uh, always taking a look at the, uh, the context of where we're at. And for us, that context is a collection 
uh, of 68 uh, historic buildings all moved to the site uh, in, uh, over the past, uh, well, almost 33 years. The, um, they started out in 1966. There were about 30 buildings on the site. Uh, by 1976, uh, that has grown, uh, planned, and uh, by uh, good fortune or uh, perhaps not good fortune uh, up until uh, two years ago uh, with uh, the last building we'll see for quite some time. There's now actually talk of moving some buildings around uh, to better uh, interpret them or to actually begin to uh, look at uh, different areas of the museum. Uh, there are, uh, for the earliest building is 1797. Uh, the latest building is 1884 with original stenciling uh, in the uh, second floor of the Davis Opera House that dates to 1913. We're trying to develop uh, three different uh, interpretive areas within the museum, a, a pioneer or pre-canal area, uh, which is to the, the far left of the screen, uh, a central uh, century uh, for the 19th century around the village square, and then a gaslight or Victorian uh, area uh, toward the back of the building where the large white structure is and that large Italianate uh, home in the Octagon House is as well. Uh, of those uh, 68 buildings, uh, 14 are dwellings or homes, uh, 26 are businesses or commercial buildings, uh, 5 are religious buildings, uh, and 4 are public buildings. Um, so uh, 49 of the 68 uh, can be considered to be a, a major uh, structure with a roof and a basement and care needs to be taken to maintain those, uh, many of them considered to be um, accessioned objects in the museum's collections. Uh, 19 of the others are outbuildings, whether it be a barn uh, or a smokehouse or an ice house uh, or a privy. Uh, some of those have been converted into education spaces uh, to be used uh, by school groups or for meetings and things of that sort. The most difficult thing to, to deal with oftentimes is the fact that we have very little environmental control in any of these, uh, these historic buildings in the village. Uh, objects you'll see in just a few moments on display in the art gallery uh, are getting the best treatment they'll see uh, in the village area. We're now working on a program to move uh, art objects uh, into storage in the gallery uh, from the historic homes, uh, as well as uh, reproducing some of our paper documents, lithographs, uh, and other uh, objects in the village uh, using a, a method with a scan back camera uh, and putting surrogates into the village uh, and putting the originals back into the gallery uh, for long-term care uh, going forward. We are also uh, working now with preservation experts uh, for both uh, building maintenance and painting to, uh, to reinterpret uh, buildings, doing a, uh, samples, both interior and exterior surfaces, uh, to begin to paint structures uh, to the interpretive period we're looking, uh, using them for uh, going forward. Uh, where I'll start out is uh, using objects in an exhibit uh, called Sweet Desserts in America. It's our approach to take the art gallery and turn it into a place to actually do historical exhibits as well, uh, using objects from our collections as well as those from the Strong Museum and the Museum and Science Center. As part of this, uh, although we had been using our own collections, uh, Patricia also found a need to begin to acquire other objects to fill gaps in the collections. And one of those gaps were the really beautiful molds that you see here uh, in this uh, diorama, in this small uh, exhibit area, with a graphic behind it showing you uh, what those uh, jellies would have looked like. Uh, Patricia also designed a method of using glycerin to actually recreate uh, the, uh, the jellies as they may have looked in the 19th century. 
uh, and we'll see in a moment, putting those into context uh, into some of our, our buildings and the dining rooms and the more elaborate homes to really begin to create that environment we talked about before. What's interesting is the original concept of acquiring these from a private collection uh, through eBay uh, was to take them and then use them uh, in the historic kitchens to begin creating more of these jellies going forward. Uh, again, using the, the glycerin technique to make them last longer and be less uh, animal attractors. Uh, what we discovered uh, just fortuitously in a, a development event last year uh, was uh, we had Walter Shy, a former White House chef, come through, take a tour of the exhibit, and tell Patricia these are some of the finest molds he'd ever seen. He'd seen a variety of collections like them. So we're reevaluating our recent acquisition uh, to put many of these now into permanent collection. Uh, and to use just a few uh, to begin enhancing some of our, our food waste program as well as the interpretive program uh, in some of our buildings. And you'll see that here uh, on a table in the Livingston Bacchus home uh, where we're now taking uh, these glycerin uh, jellies, uh, placing a mylar pad beneath them, and then displaying them through the course of the season uh, to give folks a sense of a dessert uh, in uh, one of these buildings. Uh, the two uh, jelly jars in the center do actually have the reproductions of violet jelly in them uh, made in the kitchen in that household. Uh, but it really brings to life or brings much more color uh, to a table with some really excellent faux food. What the exhibit also does, to a certain extent, is provide context with the graphics here as well. Showing some action along with them rather than just the objects themselves is critical in an exhibit like this uh, because it's not yet in the historic village area. But here we have a lot of uh, bakeware uh, and a, a scale from the collection and some measuring tins here as well. And again, some more bakeware and some more household products taken from the collections, in many cases, from some of the historic buildings, uh, from pantries, from dining rooms, uh, from kitchens themselves, or from the permanent collection uh, kept in storage. Well, we either decorate or furnish all of our kitchens in the uh, 14 dwellings, uh, and we also do active cooking in four of them. On a daily basis, three of our kitchens are actually functional uh, kitchens here. And so many of the items that you're going to see in these, uh, these images uh, are reproductions uh, that we use, uh, but some original items as well. This is our Jones Farm, uh, and on the top of this cheese cupboard uh, in the back are all original uh, salt-glazed stoneware vessels. Uh, then in the front of those are uh, reproduction items uh, with jellies, jams, other things that are preserved, along with a scale. We just acquired some reproductions to begin talking about uh, measuring uh, in the kitchens during the century. Uh, original baskets uh, occasionally on the walls, as well as tinwares that are not used but are out there for display. And the cheese cupboard is a great example of what was once a collection item that's been used for almost 30 years for making cheese that's now been converted back into a program use uh, rather than uh, a collection item uh, going forward. It's filled with cheeses that are made here uh, two, uh, two days a week. Um, looking forward, uh, this is the inside of the Hosmer Inn, uh, built in 1818 on the State Road uh, from Albany to Buffalo, uh, near our museum in Caledonia. Most of the items in this room now are reproductions. Uh, we are beginning to look at two things. One is historic dining in this building, 
And the other part is to begin to have uh, samplings and tastings in here. We're moving the chairs, which are all original, putting in benches, and allowing visitors to come in, begin playing games, and begin to sample a variety of non-alcoholic beverages here, uh, ciders, switchel, things of that sort, to let them come in and really have the feeling of being in uh, and in. The tap room just adjacent to this has already been converted uh, to allow for card games uh, and uh, other uh, chatting, things of that sort, hanging out by the fire uh, with the interpreters, uh, talking about life here now in the 1830s in this building. And also in our pioneer log house, our pioneer farmstead, uh, we have begun to replace all the original objects in this structure with reproductions uh, as well for two reasons. One is to make this building more interactive uh, during the day uh, and letting people handle more things uh, with the interpreter there, but also for a new program that we've started called Pioneer House. Uh, we did a two weekends last year, five weekends this year, where a family comes in for a fee uh, through an application and actually lives the life of a pioneer family in the building, helps us interpret the structure over the weekend. And we have one of our interpreters, uh, in this case in the background, Pat Mead, helping them out during the day, guiding them uh, for their cooking. And some of our male interpreters come down and work with the, uh, the husband to build fences, work in the blacksmith shop, do a variety of chores around as well. The children all pitch in, gathering water and so forth. We're making sure everything in here is both appropriate uh, to what's now going to be an 1815 uh, log home, uh, as well as moving some buildings off this site because they're too late for our interpretation and building new uh, with uh, hand tools uh, of the period uh, to create some new, more appropriate buildings. So changing up what we're doing uh, to make this more appropriate and to allow folks to have more access uh, to, the, uh, to the site. Luckily for us, uh, one of the people working in one of the businesses or commercial structures is Mark Pressure, our master potter. Uh, Mark produces um, about 1,500 pieces of pottery a year. Um, salt glazed stoneware like this that was just fired over Labor Day weekend. Uh, we're one of the last museums in the country using a wood-fired salt glazed stoneware kiln. Uh, he can fire about 250 to 300 pieces of this uh, three or four times a year. Uh, in the brick kiln uh, on the site. These are what you see being used in all of our store kitchens and also in a number of programming opportunities we have here as well. Mark has also gone and re reproduced a variety of redware pieces like this one, uh, a late uh, 18th century, uh, early 19th century mug that you'll find in some of our earlier buildings down there as well. And here's a look at the, uh, the kiln that was just uh, fired. Uh, Looking at uh, historic shapes, designs, things of that sort, uh, Chuck LeCount, our new senior director of programs and collections, just at the Farmers Museum in Cooperstown, they're going to talk with us about reproducing some things for their food waste program at the museum as well. Uh, and along with Mark, we have Coopers, basket makers, uh, tinsmiths making things for us as well. Uh, so we're very fortunate to have a variety of folks reproducing items we can actually use in the buildings uh, going forward. Particularly with quilts. Yep. <laughs> because, of course, um, one of our main concerns would be anything that's paper, anything that would be textile in nature, and we're working hard on getting the quilts out of the village, out of the light, and getting reproductions in, and sort of really turning the approach around that had been in place for a good 25 to 30 years before um, the staff began to professionalize. So it's it's been... Um, you know, an interesting journey, just a couple years I've been there. Was that your last one? Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. good, great. 
Well, it was very interesting. Um, I was seeing some of these slides um, for the first time, just as you were, uh, and with my conservator brain, you know, different different things were, were going off. One, um, uh, I wanted to comment on something that Brian said uh, when he first started uh, up about cleaning collections uh, and how uh, I think uh, there, there's almost two different things going on. I see this a lot uh, in Alaska with the museums I'm working at. There, there's sort of um, either uh, too much cleaning or too little cleaning. You know? So it's, it's kind of either one or the other. Either they never touch anything and I go in there and it's all covered with dust bunnies and, and fur balls and, and everything else, or uh, they're very enthusiastic and they really care for it and they kind of clean it all the time, you know. So, um, and, you know, uh, I guess the right thing to do is to kind of advocate um, a middle of the road. I have come to the conclusion that uh, a lot of conservators would like th for things to be, well, you know, there's only, you know, really a conservator should clean it because there's a lot of things that can go wrong, and that, that's absolutely true. Um, and that won't change, but um, I've seen that there's just, there's not enough, there's not enough conservators kind of to go around, and um, when I moved to Alaska, I was the only conservator in the whole state, so it was a little unreasonable for me to ask these small museums to wait for a conservator to show up to clean their collections, so um, I have been um, more liberalizing my thoughts on, on cleaning, um, and I think on the whole, I've seen um, a, lot, a lot more damage that can happen when, um, when uh, sort of when there is no active cleaning program, and um, so I I do advocate uh, cleaning of collections in in a responsible way, and and I I teach workshops on on how to do that or how to train staff or how to have volunteers do that. Um, but I think that there is a, a major difference between just sort of uh, household cleaning or or every you know every season kind of cleaning and the kind of cleaning that conservators do, and that those two should be kept very separate. Um, most of the cleaning that I advocate doing is all um, dry, so not dry cleaning, but dry, clean, dry with a space and then cleaning. Um, uh, you know, things that can be done with um, just a vacuum cleaner hose and a soft brush, a, a painted, uh, or a paint brush that has never been used for paint available at the hardware store. You know, I do advocate getting into exhibit cases and, and getting the dust off of things because uh, I learned at, a, at another um, conference I went to that dust... Dust is actually quite living, and there's, there's a lot of bacteria in there. They create biofilms that stick to things, um, cause deterioration. You know, so dust is not uh, just a benign thing sitting there. So that was one comment um, on Brian's uh, mention there. Um, the other thing was um, I, I really like this uh, concept. I've seen this a lot of, of uh, somehow the meaning and importance and, for a lack of a better word, value of a collection changing over time. So it may have been purchased for one idea uh, and then uh, either by, uh, by the addition of knowledge, such as with that mold collection, somebody comes in and says, well, you know, that's really valuable and rare, or even by the uh, effect of time. I've seen in, in other uh, historic houses where something was, was purchased or made or created for one purpose, and then, um, then over time it just becomes valuable, but sort of under the noses of the people that work there, and they don't realize that the person that made that went on to make lots of other things, is now famous, and, and is now dead, and not making any more of those, so you have the only one, and they're like, but we bought it to use, you know, and so that's a little tricky uh, thing. In, in Alaska, we have, um, we have a, a large collection of things in what we call our art bank. They're 
art that was purchased to go into government offices, and it was purchased naturally from Alaskan artists, um, and it's very separate from our collection at the State Museum. Uh, and, but what has happened is a lot of those artists have become famous, and a lot of that art has become very valuable. So there's one piece in particular that's hanging in a, a hallway, a public hallway, that uh, was purchased for a nominal amount of money, let's say $5,000 or something, you know, not a lot of money, and it was meant to be in the hallway, and now it's worth probably close to $100,000 because the artist became famous and died, and, and, um, and there's been several shows of his stuff, so now it has a tremendous value. So we're trying to figure out, well, how do we kind of retire these collections into a more preservative ap atmosphere? Um, so I thought that that was another really good point. Um, Another point that I'd like to bring up as a conservator's, from a conservator's standpoint is that um, uh, preservation is kind of a, a zero-sum game. You have sort of uh, preservation, ultimate preservation on one end of the spectrum, and then you have ultimate access on the other end, and each time you move in one direction, you take away from the other one. So the more access you gain, uh, the less preservation you're going to have, or the more preservation you have, the less access you have. So um, in that sense, a place like uh, you guys are, have been talking about um, is kind of, uh, you know, requires a lot of, of preservation planning and thinking and sort of a lot of people involved with it, and not just a, a conservator coming on board um, and throwing up their hands and saying, stop doing everything. Uh, but uh, I know that there are other institutions who have, um, who have actively... Uh, worked out some of these things with um, Colonial Williamsburg being one very good example where they have a lot of interpretation going, a lot of action, a lot of objects that are very accessible uh, and people using those objects or near those objects um, which might cause damage but they know what those are and then they have a large collection of very valuable, very rare, very um, important objects that are then in a more preservation environment. So. Just keep that in mind. You know, for every unit of access you gain, you give up a unit of preservation. Um, and I, I just want to go on and have a little more time. But um, the other the other thing I thought was just really interesting was the use of glycerin for those molds. And so I I just had a question about those. Um, the molds or the the thing that came out of the molds is made of glycerin. Is that right? And um, does it get like dusty over time, or is that a problem? Um, surprised. Now, we do, we clean everything. So, um, once a week we go through and we dust off the exhibits, we dust off the interactives, we dust off any props like that, and we've just been using a brush to dust it off. And it's in a gallery which doesn't get a great deal of dust because it's quite far removed from the front door. So, it's been all right. What I've been thrilled about, and this was what I was really nervous about, is because we're out in the country, we're on all of this acreage, we deal with wildlife, and we have mice coming in, and my main concern was would it attract rodents or anything else? And I've been happy to say that so far it hasn't. There hasn't been any sign of mice or, or anything getting into this. They seem to be quite repelled by it, to be honest with you. Are they scented in any way? You don't scent them? Um, you don't put any... No, I don't scent them. But it's just coloration. Color. It's just color. Yeah, okay. just special dyes that you use. And, um, and, you know, the other thing is about doing that, you know, while, you know, here I am, curator, conservator, in a general sense of the word, 
an exhibit designer, and I'm spending my time making these molds. Um, but the, the thing is, the artifact was the jelly. It wasn't the object so much, you know, that was important for this particular exhibit. It was all those ephemeral things, which is why we got into the faux food, bit, faux food business in the first place. Because, you know, you can show someone an empty pie plate, or you can create a pumpkin pie and talk about the prevalence of this particular dish on the American table. Uh, and the same thing with the jellies. You know, the, the idea was a good hostess would have four colors. She would arrange her table with four squares, which were, or, or a square, four corners, which were all different colors, which spoke to variety and different flavors. And again, it was that balance that they were trying to get to. And that is what we were trying to get across. Not really showing how nice molds were, but how spectacular these desserts were at the time. And I have to say that was one of the more challenging exhibits to work on because the item we were trying to convey and interpret was not necessarily the tool or the serving dish, but that food which was served, the atmosphere, and what that meant to people at the time, which is something which point. is really you yeah. know a difficult thing to convey. Unless you're in a living history center, and the thing was, and in some cases we have the best of both worlds, because people can come up to the gallery and see um, the artifacts which have been chosen because they are special, they have provenance, and then they can go down to the village and see a cook rolling out the pie crust and talking about how long it took to get that fire hot enough to put the pie in. So we're trying to offer a variety of interpretations and experiences and to find that balance. Well, um, we, what, I, what I was hoping to do was to, um, to end this, um, our session of it with enough time for the, you, the audience, to um, uh, comment, ask questions, tell about your own experiences. So in, in, I, have, I have other things that I could talk about. I'm sure Brian does too, but I'd like to just move on to um, sort of the object that I brought um, with me uh, to show all of you um, and, and would like to hear their uh, opinions about, uh, about this, this object. And, um, I selected this one because um, I think it brings uh, a few of the uh, issues to the forefront about uh, putting collections on display for long periods of time um, and also um, interpretation, um, objects that are difficult to interpret and, and uh, getting better interpretation might actually mean moving, you know, better access means moving sort of away from preservation of these. So what this is, what you're looking at, is a, um, it's called a track chart, actually. Um, it's, uh, it's probably, um, we acquired it sometime in the 20s. It's probably uh, from the late, um, it, it might even have a date on it. It's from the late 1800s. It's from yeah. the gold rush. Um, uh, late 1890s is when it's believed to, um, to have been. There you go, 1897. And, and this slide sort of turns it that way, so we might be able to see it a little better, even 1897. Anyway, what it is, is it's, it's a map of the Yukon River. And as you can imagine, the Yukon River is like 1,900 miles long, right? So if you had a map of the Yukon River and it was you know, reasonable to have in your boat, uh, it would only be this big, and so you'd have 1,900 miles in this amount of space, and you wouldn't be able to get any detail at all. So this thing is 40 feet long. So it's a map that is 40 feet long. Um, and it was done by um, a river captain, uh, and he, uh, 
his plan was to give you the, the broad outlines of the river and then for you, he even says in the instructions uh, that are, are contained on it, that he would expect you to make annotations and notes as the river changed or as you know, a tree stump maybe um, became embedded in the bank or um, the, the river's constantly changing. Um, so the idea was that uh, you, would, you would have this thing. Now the cool thing about this, what I think is the coolest thing about it, is that um, it was designed to go into a box uh, in your wheelhouse of your, of your steamboat that's going up and down the Yukon River, um, ferrying uh, sourdoughs and gold miners around. Uh, and it would actually uh, somehow, I don't know how, but it would somehow track uh, where you were in the, on the river. So it would move and unroll or roll up as you went up and down the river. It might have done it by, we were, Brian and I were talking, it might have either done it by, by time or it might have done it by just um, by somehow keeping track of, of how many miles you had gone on the river with some sort of paddle or something like that in, in the water. So I find that aspect of it is really cool because just looking at it like this, we have it on display in our um, Gold Rush um, in our Gold Rush exhibit, uh, and uh, I have a little bit of a close up of, of that. Uh, so it, it's just kind of sitting there. It's not in any kind of enclosure. It's, it's behind plexiglass, um, but it's not in any kind of interpretive enclosure. Um, and then uh, I have one more shot of it. This is kind of a close-up where you see uh, what it looked like. Now, these were made, this uh, was, was made and sold, so that meant it had to be reproduced some way, mechanically reproduced. It's a cyanotype, so it's like an early mm -hmm. blueprint. Um, and they're fairly... Uh, fairly light sensitive. Um, they you know, weren't really meant to last uh, in perpetuity. Uh, so when the exhibit designer came to me and said, well, we want to put this thing on exhibit, um, naturally a discussion ensued about um, its light sensitivity. Uh, and um, we have it under very low light levels. It's, it's about um, five to, it's between five and eight foot candles, depending um, on, from the center, it's about eight-foot candles in and out is about five-foot candles around the edges. And so that, that's not a lot of light, um, but it still um, is enough light over a long period of time. It's been up now for um, three years. It's been on exhibit for three years. So uh, then the, the, the conversation about putting it on exhibit uh, was, well, should we rotate it every mm -hmm. so often? You know, because it's 40 feet. And so that brings up the question of do you do you just damage one part of it or do you damage the whole thing equally? You know, that... So what we're doing is we're rotating it. Um, for better or for worse, we're going to damage the whole thing, I guess. Um, so that's... Uh, the, those are just kind of the issues that, um, that I wanted to bring to the table. There was some discussion of, of recreating uh, a box that would rotate somehow rotate the map and so that you could see different parts of it because there are really cool parts of this there there are towns along the way that still exist today Eagle Alaska for example is um, almost at the start of the Yukon River as it enters uh, Alaska so that would be a cool thing to have on display um, you know so you might want to see parts of it but obviously if you think about it, it it's a uh, hundred years old over a hundred years old and so we wouldn't be able to really do that with the original, so do we make a re replica and do we display the replica and then have a, you know, it brings up a lot of these different issues. So that's why I selected this object and I'd like to hear um, from my colleagues here of, of they're seeing this, Patricia's seeing this for the first time, probably says, what the heck is that? But, 
Um, no, um, actually, we had um, a map that puts me in mind of this because it was two-sided mm. and had writing on it. And it's very important for um, the history of our area. And it came to us in pieces, and we had it conserved, put back together, and then in a protective box, basically, um, with ultraviolet uh, UV plexi on it, um, and so mounted in such a way that you could look at it from either side. But there again, because it was an important piece, I mean, we elected to only display it under limited light conditions for a short period of time. And I have to say, that's one advantage that we have at the gallery, because our season is about six months. So when we put an exhibit up, it may be an object may be exposed for six months, but then the lights go off, and normally we put another exhibit up. So we do have that advantage that a lot of institutions just do not have. What do you think of it, Brian? Well, I know that when we opened up uh, the city of Rochester's 1876 time capsule a number of years ago, almost uh, eight years ago now, uh, there are a number of, of books that were put in there, uh, lithographs, uh, school books and things of that sort, that look spectacular when they were opened up. And the conservator at the museum at that time decided to turn the page uh, every couple of weeks so that it was actually getting light on every page rather than keeping it open to one spot and sacrificing just, just one set of those. So in general, I, I think that it's a matter of you know, letting each one get a certain amount of exposure, but so no one gets uh, all of it, and certainly limit the light that you have under as well. So what do you guys think about um, building a box uh, to, you know, to more replicate how this would be used? Because I think from an inter interpretive standpoint, I actually don't think uh, that a lot of our visitors come in and immediately get what this is. Um, you know, you have to you have to do some reading, and you have to think about it. This is a good example. Uh, I'm all for real things being seen in museums, but when I saw this map and saw it explained, and saw the constraints that you have because of its size, this might be an interesting artifact to actually. Oh, sorry. Uh, wait a second. We're going to have to do a little uh, acting here. You're going to have to speak into that and do it. Start again. Can I jump in now? No. I just start from the beginning. Okay. This, this, when you uh, introduced this map and described described it and its size, uh, it occurred to me that while I'm a proponent of seeing real things in museums, this would be a great educational artifact if you digitized the whole thing and let it become an exploration on a on a touch screen somehow, uh, and even let visitors um, with satellite imagery now, you could follow the same route on this map today. And it like might be part of the map and an actual picture. Comes it, up. it might be that the value that this map has interpretively would be far enhanced by resting the map and treating it, give, presenting it to the public in a different way. I can even imagine having it, it this all scanned and having a touch screen on a computer to actually touch something and do exactly that. Just have an image of it pop up either on, on later maps or uh, even visuals of images of it along the way. So, yeah, so now um, we can either continue talking about this or if somebody has um, other questions that we have. Un unfortunately, Patricia has uh, another event she has to go to. But, um, so we'll have to speak into the microphone because this, this session is being taped. Well, I'm from just a small museum, but we do have quite a number of uh, 
uh, elevations for trolley lines that, that are very long maps. We had a 12-foot map that we wanted that was of great utility for us, not for exhibit, but for the information for research. And it became too uh, fragile to use. It was about four feet, about four feet by 12 feet. But in the parks department, they had another copy on linen backing, and they had a, a copier, a roll type, and they were able to make a, a copy of, of, of it for us. And on something like that, I think you'd want to evaluate the risk of, of making a copy on a roll uh, type machine like that uh, make a reproduction and show maybe show the original part of the time in a light restricted uh, area but for your display work off from the reproduction because that could be done yeah that's a good point so does anybody else have I know we have actually two conservators in the room um, so yeah, that's pretty good when we were in Atlanta we had there was another conservator in the back and she kept commenting, ah, oh, Scott, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I, I would love to hear what, um, what you guys have to say, if you have any comments or anybody else. Um, we, have, we actually have a, a nice amount of time. We have about 20 minutes. So um, you know, this, was, this was kind of the part that was missing in Atlanta was to have more discussion from the audience. So please feel free, is anybody? Thank you. I had the fortune to go out to the Country Village and Museum yesterday and I had, what, two and a half hours, I think, to breeze through it, um, which doesn't nearly do it enough justice. But um, my background is in archaeology, and I noticed that there's only at least one area that I saw. There's like, the little pantry area, I could think of the Jones Farm. The Jones Farm, yep. That had uh, the archaeological artifacts. And I guess my question is about the role of archaeological collections to all three of these areas, because uh, artifacts recovered from the ground, pose a different set of problems and to conservation, but they can also be used differently with exhibit design and public interpretation, as well as um, actually you know, curating in an exhibit design. So I wanted to know if you could just speak a little more to archeological collections that might not necessarily be whole objects. <laughs> Um, I know that the, the, the Jones Farm uh, display is one that works out very well for us. Uh, I also can tell you that only two other buildings uh, at our museum actually had archaeological work done for them. One was Kiefer's uh, Log House uh, down in the lower part of the site. The other one was the McKay House. The entire back portion of that building uh, was, was removed in the early 1970s, and archaeologists from, from my museum, before I, the, my last museum before I got there, had done work that reconstruction of that part of the house, although it's not part of the normal interpretation, I don't think, was actually based upon archaeological work that was done uh, there as well. Uh, I know that our potter, uh, Mark Pressure, has asked us to uh, look at doing some, uh, actually building a display area in the pottery to actually be, begin to pull out some of the, the redwares and the stonewares uh, that have been excavated in this area as well to show how he has developed his craft based upon uh, reconstructions of some of those fragments. Uh, but what you saw, I think, is the, what works out the best in most cases uh, are those, those small exhibits uh, in plexiglass uh, cases where folks can actually uh, you know, look at them that way. It's also very good is to make reproductions of some of those and use those archaeological fragments uh, as, as tools in which to teach 
how to solve problems or how to come to conclusions about what something may have been used for. Uh, it's amazing when you're out excavating archaeological sites, as you know, to find bits and pieces of things. You have not, not a clue of what they are, but then in sites like, like ours, uh, being able to go and suddenly make a connection uh, between something that you had a rusted fragment of and then seeing a whole piece and making that connection. Um, but I think that uh, doing more on sites like Jesse Country Museum with archaeological specimens are talking about the benefit that can have for understanding uh, foodways and uh, what kinds of objects were used, popularity of certain kinds of things. It needs to be done more often than we do. So I, um, I kind of missed part of your question, I think. I just want to make sure I'm understanding it correctly. Are you asking about um, using uh, let's say, for example, pot sherds or arrowheads or something in a, in a more um, giving people more access, like children's groups or something, more access to actual archaeological objects uh, to enhance interpretation. Uh, to enhance interpretation. I, yeah. End of end of statement. <laughs> yeah, in general, that would be the, the main focus yeah. for public programming interpretation to you know kind of do the puzzle pieces things you know, very literal pieces. Yeah. Um, Oops, sorry. Uh, yeah, the main focus of my question was on exhibiting archaeological pieces involving the archaeological evidence in interpretation of the exhibits, um, how it benefits the historical research. Um, but also, I know it presents um, conservation issues, especially with like privy sites and underwater sites. Um, and I know that you know, coming from a maritime museum that some, some of the pieces are very large and very sensitive to also do um, you know, conservation treatments, but that ultimately they too should be put on display in exhibit. So I didn't know if there was also that kind of archeological bent on some of the conservation problems that you've come across. You know, uh, I, I've worked at, at, go ahead and set that there. Maybe people can just um, take it at, at will. But uh, I've had the fortune of, of working in an archeological uh, dig as a conservator. Um, it happened to be in, in the country, Turkey. Uh, a lot of archaeology is going on there. A lot of conservators work there. Um, and uh, I always thought it was really fascinating because there would be um, shards from pottery uh, that were, you know, from Middle Bronze Age, you know, 1200 AD. So, you know, a couple thousand year old pots and, you know, pieces of pottery. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, we knew that they were that old, um, but they didn't have a particular value anymore to the interpretation. They were just, um, they were removed from certain levels uh, and um, interpreted and then um, just basically chucked over the side. You know, and so you could walk out there and you'd be <laughs> over, you know, 3,000 year old pottery. And, um, you know, and I, I would pick up some certain pieces or whatever. Um, the best of it was, of course, preserved, and, and you know the site wasn't doing anything wrong. I mean, they would they would reconstruct pots as as possible, but there's just so much pottery out there. It's just it just doesn't have a value. Um, so uh, I know that uh, you know certain um, ex excavated materials um, would might be put into a category where they could have a lot more access without affecting. Um, their value for research or um, because basically they, they no longer have a value for research, for example. So um, I think in uh, engaging, especially a young audience about, I just thought it was really cool, you know, you go out there and you say, this is 3,000 years old, you know, and these kids would be like, well, that's what, wow, you know. 
It really, they find that stuff really cool. So I think you know, there are, there's a lot of stuff that is excavated that is not fragile, that is not particularly um, valuable, that the information that is gotten from it is, has already been gotten. But you don't see a lot of that used um, in interpret, or I don't at least see a lot of it used in, in interpretation. I don't know why, but um, from from a conservation standpoint, uh, I think your point is well taken. The stuff that is on the other end of that spectrum, I've worked with materials that are so fragile that um, you know they, you really can have very little access to them without changing, um, without damaging them or changing them inalterably. So. I just think, you know, once it's been in the ground, there's a lot of stuff that's been in the ground for a long period of time, um, and it's survived, and everything that was going to leach away from it is already gone, and so, you know, I, I think, why not let them handle it, you know? But. And for maritime sites, though, if you've got site, things that were buried in the, the, the bottom of uh, the ocean or uh, of a riverway, something like that, as soon as that comes out of that environment, out of that context, it's going to start to degrade. Uh, so making sure that, uh, well, two things. One is... You, you can control the environment before it comes up out of that. The other one is, there. well, two things. A lot of conservation is based upon doing no harm to an object, but looking at ways to either keep it stable in some sort of a solution or to impregnate that material, organic material, uh, with some solution that can be reversed or it's not going to do any more harm. I know at my, my last museum, uh, some work that was done on archaeological fragments, uh, iron pieces, Indian trade materials, uh, shovels, uh, spades, things of that sort. They actually took the uh, the piece down, all the rust off, down to bare metal, and then put uh, graphite on it. Well, the piece was preserved, but the shape of what it really was was gone. So I know people have changed that to, to leave some of that rust, but to stabilize for future use. I also believe, too, that uh, we have to make sure if we do archaeological fragments for a display, it's not just, you know, here's a bunch of, of stuff laying out there, putting into a context, and also what it means. The RMSC has got a great little exhibit in their, uh, their archaic alcove where there are all kinds of stone tools laying at the base of it, but then uh, one of the diorama painters back in the 1940s actually recreated uh, what the scenes would have looked like for a hunting camp and gathering other kinds of activities with those objects actually portrayed in that diorama, so putting them in the context so folks can see how those were used, what we can learn from them is really important. If any of you have had a chance to visit the uh, Monitor Center at uh, Newport News, Virginia, they've uh, the gun turret from the Navy ship, Civil War ship, uh, the Monitor, uh, has been brought up. It's, um, what, 18 feet in diameter. And the way they've actually accomplished both things, they've put it on display, but it's, it's the conservation lab that you're looking at. Mm. The fourth wall of the conservation lab is looking, the visitor moves by and sees that gun turret, which will be in a tank of chemical solutions for what, the next seven years, I think, <laughs> as it's being worked on. So you, you're not only seeing it, you're seeing it mm -hmm. conserved. Wow, that's a good point. Any other objects? In your uh setting that you have with your museum with all the houses and your interpretation. It just made me think that you said that it was started to gather in 1966 to 1976. And those of us who are around who remember back in those early days of all that, you know, we're really blessed today with having replicas that are made so exact, which you really didn't have that 
in the 60s, mm -hmm. most of what was being done then as replicas were really kind of parodies made of modern materials and, and you, you really had to go back and get what you would call consumables or programmables, uh, whereas today you know, there's very little of that that you really do have to use. Is, is that your experience? It is. In fact, it's, it's really important not to, to stop at, uh, at doing research uh, as they were doing in the 1960s and early 70s. So, we know so much more today uh, than we did then. Uh, the ability to reproduce materials uh, is uh, easier today in many cases. One of our, our buildings I didn't talk about was the Alte store. Those of you that were there yesterday may, may have seen that early on in the tour. Uh, the previous curator there, Dan Barber, took what was essentially a, a big a building full of antiques, working with one of our volunteers, is re replacing all the old uh, antique material, or most of it, with modern replicas to make that store look like it looked in 1852. Uh, and then scanning uh, or acquiring labels from products that have been used there and refreshing that to really give the visitor an impression of walking into uh, a, a dry goods store of that time period. So certainly creating that environment with reproductions can actually happen. It makes a big difference because uh, people can actually touch that as well. It's one of the main buildings on our focus field study, an enhanced program uh, for school kids to be able to go in there uh, and actually have a 30-minute experience in the general store, uh, touching some of the fabrics, working in the, the mail, uh, that, those kinds of things as well, using all surrogates. My uh, last museum, the RMSC, the archivist Lee Kemp, who's right next door actually, did a lot with primary documents uh, from the, uh, the era of enslavement, uh, letters from Douglas to Anthony uh, as well, uh, some uh, manumission papers, uh, the RMSC has a trunk from a, uh, a gentleman who collected things in the south, in a, one of the colored regiments, uh, and are scanning some of those, uh, a broadside for an escaped slave. They're actually encapsulating those surrogates and using those for school kids to go forward as well. So I think our ability today to scan things as well and make them look exactly like the originals, as long as folks, you know, you're not you know, cheating them out of that, this gives them a chance to actually touch something because uh, the, the, the information is all there. The, the handwriting is there, the story is there, uh, and making that accessible that way has been very effective, I know, for, for them. Yeah, grab the microphone. Somebody hand them that microphone. Well, question, specific, question specifically about Genesee Country Village. I'm wondering uh, if you, all, you, it seems, in fact, I'm surprised you haven't measured the halfway measure uh, having uh, original items out and then a repair program. Uh, to uh, take care of wear and breakage. We do that as well. Uh, we have uh, a number of benches out on the property that are originals that we've been repairing along the way. Uh, although the, I, I'm not sure if the, the vision of what we have today for the village of interpreting buildings of life in the 19th century was the same vision that Mr. Whaley had uh, back in the 1960s. It was primarily a place to preserve the architecture, uh, to outfit the first floors of the houses, uh, and to use it as a place to, to entertain, uh, for the most part. Having the public come in was really a second thought uh, for him, I think, and doing the, what we're trying to do today to bring the past to life, to make those connections, was not necessarily foremost in his mind. Uh, but finding qualified carpenters, uh, painters, uh, technicians that can actually do the work uh, on these buildings is becoming more and more difficult. Though it's easier to get reproductions uh, from folks, uh, finding skilled craftspeople sometimes is more difficult. Uh, to do that. We're fortunate to have some very dedicated staff members who have been around 
uh, for uh, 25 years in some cases that have picked up or had information passed down to them from previous craftspeople to maintain some of those. But it's, it's, it's a constant battle keeping up not only uh, the buildings themselves but the, the walkways and some of the objects that are being used. For example, uh, we have a step stove in the Jones Farm. It's an original object that's nearing the end of its life. Finding another similar step stove to use is extremely difficult uh, to be able to have that. And just recasting another one is right now out of our, our price range uh, to have that recast. I do <laughs> actually, we're doing more of that now. Uh, our new senior director of programs and our new president, actually, are really big on recreating some of those uh, historic crafts, uh, building trades especially. So we've been hewing logs uh, this summer uh, to build a new corn crib down at the Pioneer Farm and also did that with uh, constructing a new uh, pig pen uh, down at the Pioneer Farm as well. So we're doing a lot more new construction using old techniques than we've done in quite a while. And folks are fascinated by it as well. We built a log sugar shack uh, during our SEP Serpent Sugar Program in March. Folks were fascinated by using the ads and the axes and building the log structure, uh, notching it and things. So it's, it's a, certainly a draw for the public. Yeah, please. Um, I, I'm a conservator, and um, I guess I'd like to comment about um, uh, the issue that was raised about uh, facilitators and um, the, uh, the, the one woman who owned that house and didn't want anyone to, to take away the materials. I think there's an opportunity to, to really um, uh, broaden the facilitator's role, and um, Scott touched on that with uh, the cleaning aspect. I don't know. I'm not really familiar with living museums, and I don't know if that's uh, a double kind of training that, that goes on, but um, certainly I think that with that tiered system of, of objects, the touchables, uh, and the things that are on display that um, facilitators in uh, maybe certain days of the week could, could certainly be um, used for cleaning to maintain the collections as well. And that would, um, they, that would broaden their scope, but it would also send a message to um, your visitor that not only interpretation is important, but this is how we preserve. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. We're very lucky at the museum right now. There's a group of women uh, who are actually uh, from the Friends of the Museum and Science Center years ago, back in the mid-1980s, Nancy Davis was a conservator there then, who trained them in some basic uh, conservation techniques for dry cleaning, maintaining exhibit spaces, doing the dusting, doing the vacuuming, etc. cetera. Uh, Ralph Wiegand, who's conservator after her, maintained that as well. They're still out working, known as the Q-tip ladies <laughs> here locally, uh, and volunteer their services uh, with us right now going through and doing some of the cleaning in the buildings. They're also part of a gathering, we call them, special half-hour programs where the public can come through and see the the job of preservation or conservation care of objects as well. Uh, so our staff used to see that also. But you're right, being able to have trained people to be able to do that and to let people know we do feel, feel it's important because sometimes they don't think, the interpreters, uh, we feel it's important to keep those things uh, neat or clean, uh, that, that it is. And we're actually trying to find ways to incorporate their their time more in the buildings to do more cleaning than they have in quite a while, maintaining all the public areas, the walkways, uh, and some, um, some cleaning behind the barriers 
Um, those that will be in buildings that we're going to take barriers down in uh, will have an access to, to do more cleaning or more care of the buildings. And we'll never go, you know, the entire way, the other way, where every building is open completely and accessible. It'll be a mix of both original objects, original buildings, and some that are more hands-on, knowing full well a lot of folks like the real thing and want to be able to see it, don't need to touch it, but know that it's, it's real and it's from the 19th century. And I'd just like to comment, I think that's an excellent um, way to kind of try and get, you know, get everybody on the same page. It almost elevates their status a little bit, saying, you know, that, that we're going to give you training and, and a certain level of trust um, and, and a, a role in, in caring for the collection. And, and, you know, they may not have even thought along those lines. And then they may be your best advocates, you know. Don't touch that. You know, we've, we've seen the damage on that that's happened. I've, I've actually seen that happen with... Um, caretakers as, as you kind of try and elevate their, they're just, some of them are just worried naturally about, you know, losing, you know, even having their roles diminished rather than enhanced. So I think with more training, it's a good thing. We probably have time for one more, uh, one more question. If anybody has one more question. Sure, Doreen. I'm a conservator as well. And this, this question might move outside of what we started talking about, but Brian just touched on something that's very important to our institution. Um, we, like many other institutions, are trying to move towards more barrier-free. We have many different buildings, many of which are not staffed by a, a staff person to, to tell people, please do not touch. Could you tell where you are? I am at the Adirondack Museum in upstate New York. Um, and so what I'd like to throw out now since we don't have time for this full discussion, but we all need to start talking about how can we protect our objects and still meet that mandate of, um, of really increasing people's ability to, to move into those spaces. And, I, and the tiered collection is something we already do, but the programmable objects has just hit, I mean the programmable collection, yeah. has just, just hit exactly what we need because we do have education objects and collections objects, but the programming objects are our third tier that yeah. we, didn't, we didn't have a name for and we, we knew we had a need and, and that hits it exactly. But once we start allowing people to touch historic looking mm -hmm. objects, they really start losing um, that, the reminder that if an object is on a shelf in an exhibit space, they can't just go touch it and pick it up. So, so we're really having people interfere with our objects now. And I'd love to have a discussion online or in a future session about what are some of the practical techniques that we can use to help remind people that the collections objects need to be protected and that we're, we're providing programming objects as, as a courtesy. That's a very good point. I'm, I'm going to write that down um, uh, and, and make some suggestions. I mean, the programming committee uh, for uh, AASLH is always looking for hot topics or topics that people really want. And, and I think if you do um, exactly what you're saying, narrow the focus down and have a whole discussion on, on this idea of, of uh, you know, a programming collection that, that has been made or purchased or developed for use, and, and what are the pros and cons of that, you know? And this whole idea of like sending the wrong signal, I think is, is valid. Uh, you know, they go, whoopee, I can touch anything now. Um, I think that that's, that's good. But not giving access and, and just cutting off complete access, 
there's no going back. I mean, the genie's out of that bottle. So, you know, we really have to, as conservators, we have to, um, you know, be mindful of that and to play the balance. And the other part of that issue is the, the whole barrier-free museums, uh, which I, I don't recall who mentioned it, but it, it's easy in an art museum for people to have that automatic respect for, um, up for the objects because of the context. Yet when you walk into a historic house, since that context is so cozy and casual, it, the, all those subconscious reminders are gone. And mm. where can we, what practical ideas can we come up with that will... Um, be reminders um, for, for that, that same level of respect. Uh, so I know that there are ideas out there. I, I just, um, I'm at the Adirondack Museum if anybody wants to email me. We know it's an important issue and as our discussions going forward, doing this for the, the first time in, in most buildings or any buildings, uh, and making sure when people realize as they approach a building that, that this one is touchable. Uh, make it clear. So make, make sure we get the message across clearly for that building and let people know in other ones it's not necessarily the same. Highlight it on our visitor map uh, as well so they know that certain ones you can do that. And uh, on days when we have our uh, 30 or 40,000 school kids to come through, uh, having ropes that can go up as a barrier uh, for those days, making sure you can actually take them down or put them up if need be. Because there are some days when we'll have up to 2,000 students uh, on the site uh, for the free range or the drop and run. Uh, tour, other than a, a focused-led uh, tour, that uh, we know it's, it's asking for trouble if we don't provide at least some form of a barrier uh, for them. All right. Well, thank you. That was that was very good. It happened exactly as I wished. Um, I'd like to thank Brian and, and um, Patricia in, in absentia for um, participating in this, um, agreeing to come here, uh, and I want to thank you all for uh, sticking it out to the end. And um, just thank you very much. So. Thank you.